Hello, I'm Jimmy Moss. And I'm Juan Garcia. And we are super excited to bring you the first episode of Vamos Verde. A podcast about Austin FC, the people, and the culture that surround the team. On this episode, goalkeeper Brad Stuver on tough days at the office and how difficult it is not to take those home with you. Hear how R&B singer Melot manifested Austin's professional soccer team. Plus the latest on off-season signings from Moon Tower soccer hosts Jeremiah Bentley and Landon Cottom. That is out now on KUT.org or wherever you get your podcasts. From the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio, this is In Black America. I'm a firm believer in the power of co-curricular experiences, not not necessarily extracurricular, but co-curricular mm-hmm. experiences. And those are those internships and those are those clinics that you can do where you get real practical experience about, you know, how you're going to go out and change the world. And Shirley and Jim were just, you know, my daddy called her Shirley Clark. He knew her back from Howard, back when he with Stokely. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we grew up knowing Jim Clyburn forever. They, and I tell people, they taught me it was about public service. It wasn't about politics. They they could care less about the political gamesmanship. They really wanted to help people. And, you know, when I got my law degree and when I decided to run for office, that was what really, really, really helped guide me, um, helped give me a North Star. And those two were so talented. Shirley Franklin's one of the baddest women on earth. She's one of the best mayors who doesn't get the credit she deserves. She transformed an entire city in Atlanta. I mean, she's just an amazing person with a warm spirit. Bakari T. Seller, CNN political analyst, lawyer, former South Carolina House of Representative, and author of Who Are Your People? published by HarperCollins Publishers. In 2006, Sellers made history at the age of 22 when he defeated a 26-year incumbent state representative to become the youngest member of the South Carolina State Legislature and the youngest African-American elected official in the nation. Seller is also the author of the New York Times best-selling book, My Vanishing Country, a memoir which has been described as part memoir, part historical and cultural analysis illustrating the lives of America's forgotten African-American working-class men and women. In his latest book, Who Are Your People? A Children's Picture Book, Seller takes the reader on a journey from cotton fields to Sinians to the present day through the eyes of a young father and his children. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Who Are Your People? with Fakari T. Sellers, Esquire, In Black America. You know, I have these twins who are the, they are the, you know, the illustrations that are, that are in the, in the book and throughout the book. It's me sharing with my twins, our history, who our people are. And when you have twins and when you're a new father, you try to find things on TV and books where they can see themselves in the images and they just aren't a lot out there. And so I wrote a book and I wanted to be able to have my children see um, themselves in the pages and also have them get a little glimpse and understanding of their history and be proud of it. You know, one of the things when I, on this book tour, I talked to Anderson Cooper about the Kenneth Clark doll experiment done in the forties used in Brown v. Board. And that, I mean, it just goes to show you that many of those thoughts that young people have about the color of their skin and the value of themselves, the ones they had back in 54, 55 are still there today. And so representation really matters. Bakari T. Sellers was born into an activist family. 
He has followed in the footstep of his father, civil rights leader Dr. Cleveland Sellers, in his tireless commitment to public service while championing progressive policies to addressing issues ranging from education and poverty to preventing domestic violence and childhood obesity. Sellers earned his undergraduate degree in African-American studies from Morehouse College, where he served as student body president. He earned his law degree from the University of South Carolina School of Law. From 2006 to 2014, he represented South Carolina's 9th District in the State House of Representatives. At the time, he was the youngest African-American elected official in the country at age 22. In his latest book, Who Are Your People?, Silla gives a tribute to the family and community that helped shape us and to make us who we are, inspired by his own personal experience as a father and politician. Illustration for the book was provided by Reggie Brown. Recently in Black America spoke with Akari T. Sellers. Man, I am more blessed than I deserve. I'm here at home in the Carolinas, and we are waiting for this inch of snow that will undoubtedly shut our city down. So I'm, I'm doing well, man, doing well. I heard that. Tell us what was life like growing up in South Carolina. Um, you know, I actually wrote about it in my first book, mm-hmm. uh, My Vanishing Country. It was more of a memoir, but, you know, it, South Carolina is a very interesting place. I grew up in a small town called Denmark where we had three stoplights and a blinking light. Small town, but we, you know, it was that very, very homely feel um, in that uh, everybody's your cousin. You go to church with everybody. You know everybody. If you have some success, everybody cheers for that success. If you fall down, everybody's there to lift you up. Um, but we had two HBCUs mm-hmm. in that small town, Denmark Technical College and Voorhees College. And um, it's home. I love it. And it's like a lot of rural places now in America that, you know, state legislatures and the United States Capitol have kind of turned their back on them. And they, those rural towns are struggling. So I do my best to lift it up when I can. And what were some of your favorite subjects while you are in high school? Lunch and girls were probably my two favorite <laughs> subjects. I don't know if those if those count. Um, but in high school, I, you know, what's what's wild is I always tell people that the course that actually prepared me the most in high school was uh, a keyboard course because it taught me how to type and use the computer. Mm. Something I did not know that was going to be what it was, but my ability to type and utilize a computer came in handy very young age. Um, I loved, loved, loved English um, and U.S. history. I ended up becoming a U.S. history major or, excuse me, an African-American studies history in in, uh, college. And uh, so English and history were probably my favorites. And what drew you to Morehouse? I mean, what wouldn't draw you to Morehouse, right? um, My brother went to Morehouse. Um, I went down to visit during a summer, uh, a a spring-summer day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just the level of expectation at Morehouse. It's the it's the crown they place above your head that you can grow into. It's the the Edwin Moses, Julian Bond, Samuel L. Jackson, Spike Lee, David Satcher. Um, you know, hopefully people would say Randall Wolfen and Bakari Sellers in that category as well. Of those alums who went to Morehouse who changed the world, and so I wanted to be named in that group. I heard that. And your interest in law. You want the truth, or you want to, or, or you want me to make something up as we go? Uh, you can give me both. <laughs> uh, the making it up is that I wanted to be like Johnny Cochran and Thurgood Marshall. I heard the truth that. Is that mm-hmm. The truth, though, is that I really was terrible at math, and I wanted to go to graduate school, and so I had to find the only graduate school exam that didn't have any math on it, which was the LSAT. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I went there, and I kind of found this niche called civil rights law. 
I learned from people like Johnny Cochran, who represented my father back during the movement. I, I, I learned from people like Charles Ogletree, and now I do a lot of civil rights law around the country. So, you know, I, I tell folk that it was fortuitous that I ended up going to law school, but it's a blessing that I went. Give us a backdoor look at, you know, growing up in a family where your father was a civil rights activist and a professor. Well, both my, I'll, I'll reverse engineer. Both my mother and father were, were college professors. And mm-hmm. so education was something that was mandatory. Gotcha. We didn't really have a whole lot of choice about going to school and doing well in school. Mm-hmm. You know, the choices that my parents gave us were that you can go to any college you want to go to in the country as long as it's an HBCU. Gotcha. That's the choices they gave us, right? So it wasn't mm-hmm. much of a choice, but it was a, it was a choice. And they wanted us to do well. We didn't go to school to make B's and C's. We went to school to make A's and B's. Mm-hmm. And they told us that was our only job, was to focus on being well-prepared and going to school. And my brother, sister, and I, we did that pretty well. Being a child of the movement, and a part of that proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, is interesting. It's a club that not everybody's a part of. But, you know, talking to the children of Julian and, and Malcolm and Martin, um, and, and, you know, being, being able to communicate with all of those people whose mothers and fathers sacrificed or paid what Abraham Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion is just an, an amazing feeling. When you pick up the phone and it's Kathleen Cleaver, or you pick up the phone and it's Uncle Julian or Uncle John, um, when you go to D.C. and uh, your dad's like, go by, and Marion's expecting you to come by, so you knock on the door of the mayor's office and Marion Barry takes you down on the street to get a hot dog and just talk to you about life. And when you go to the jailhouse to, to, to see James Brown, mm-hmm. you know, these are, these are the stories of my life. And all of those stories emanate from my dad being a change agent in the civil rights movement. What was it like being the youngest House of Representative in the country when you're like 22 years old? I guess the first question, what made you want to become a politician? at that age? Well, you know, being a change agent is something we could always do in my family. That was the goal for us. Mm -hmm. You could go in any profession as long as you were willing to be a change agent. And so I chose politics. Um, Now, running for office at a young age like that was probably the definition of insanity. I was the dog that caught the submarine when I got elected, right? (laughs) Um, I ran against somebody who was 82 years old who had been in office for 26 years, which was longer than I had been born. I announced my campaign on my 21st birthday and won my race when I was 21 years old on June 13, 2006. And I remind folks that back then, you know, Barack Obama wasn't the black elected official that people looked up to. We all looked up to Deval Patrick, actually. Mm -hmm. Deval Patrick was a two-term governor, black governor of the state of Massachusetts at the time. Um, And, you know, it was just an amazing feeling, to be completely honest with you. I represented the same amount of people as all the as every all the other elected officials up there, um, you know, I was prepared. Uh, I demanded respect and gave respect. Served for eight years. It was the best eight years of my life in terms of service. I tried to change the world. I learned that that's really difficult in a place like South Carolina. Um, but I, it didn't make me give up or give up hope. It was just a really tough job. Now, as far as I could, could tell thus far, you work for some very influential individuals. Congressman James Clyburn and, and Mayor Shirley Franklin, which I interviewed some years ago. Tell us about those experiences. I'm a firm believer in the power of co-curricular experiences, not not necessarily extracurricular, but co-curricular mm-hmm. experiences. And those are those internships and those are those um, 
um, clinics that you can do where you get real practical experience about, you know, how you're going to go out and change the world. And Shirley and Jim were just, you know, my daddy called her Shirley Clark. He knew her back from Howard, back when he was in school with Stokely. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we grew up knowing Jim Clyburn forever. They, and I tell people, they taught me it was about um, public service. It wasn't about politics. They they could care less about the political gamesmanship. They really wanted to help people. And, um, you know, when I got my law degree and when I decided to run for office, that was what really, really, really um, helped guide me um, and helped give me a North Star. And those two were so talented. I mean, Shirley Franklin's one of the baddest women on earth. I don't let, uh, she's one of the best mayors who doesn't get the credit she deserves. Mm-hmm. Um, she transformed an entire city in Atlanta. Uh, I mean, she's just an amazing person with a warm spirit. And she uh, was a, a visiting professor here at UT a, a couple of years back. What brought you to your second book, a children's picture book, Who Are Your People? So, um, you know, I have these twins who are the, um, they are the, you know, the illustrations that are, that are in, the, in the book and throughout the book. It's me sharing with my twins our history, who our people are. And when you have twins and when you're a new father, you try to find things on TV and books where they can see themselves in the images and they just aren't a lot out there. And so I wrote a book and I wanted to be able to have my children see um, themselves in the pages and also um, have them get a little glimpse and understanding of their history and be proud of it. Um, you know, one of the things when I, on this book tour, I talked to Anderson Cooper about the Kenneth Clark doll experiment mm-hmm. done in the forties used in Brown v. Board. And that, I mean, it just goes to show you that many of those, um, thoughts that young people have about the color of their skin and the value of themselves, um, the ones they had back in 54, 55 are still there today. And so representation really matters. And how did you hook up with Reggie Brown? Uh, fate. Um, they sent me some names. They sent me some images. Um, I wanted I wanted to have a black man um, because I wanted. I, and maybe this is naive. I don't even know if this is a real thing or not. But I wanted to see if my words and his illustrations could maybe speak to more black men and encourage them as they were reading, maybe to read more to their children, um, and maybe they could hear their voice and the images and the and the words of the book. And, uh, you know, I think maybe it's happening. Obviously, we're talking today regarding the book, but thus far, how has the reaction been? You know, the reaction's been good. It placed number four on the New York Times bestsellers list in its first week, which is a great debut. I'm excited about it. Hopefully it continues to rise um, as we, you know, emerge from King Holiday and go into Black History Month. I think it's evergreen and meets the moment where we're talking about race. Of course, there's some fools who don't necessarily want kids learning about history or our history um, and, you know, raising some some uh, uh, objection to kids having this book. But, you know, we, we're always prepared for, a, you know, a fight if necessary to get this book in as many children's hands as possible. How long did it take you to put your thoughts on paper? Now, that's a trick question. For an adult book, it takes a while, four mm-hmm. to six months. Right. For a children's book, it's about whenever you find the rhythm. <laughs> For whenever you find the rhythm. I listen to Outcast. I look at my kids run around. I see what they like, what they don't like. 
and then you just got to find a rhythm. And Reggie's similar because as he's drawing, mm-hmm. Reggie listens to a lot of – I listen to a lot of Southern hip-hop. Reggie listens to a lot of Motown. But we both listen to, to, to black music, which drives us and um, helps us get our pen to paper. You're also a political commentator for CNN. How did you happen to get that gig? Again, fortuitous. I tell folks you got to be prepared for the moment. I um, actually, my good friend Clemente Pinckney was murdered in a church mm. um, in Charleston, South Carolina, Mother Emanuel, along with eight others. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of interviews and um, I got a phone call from CNN that said they'd been watching me and they wanted to hire me to do some commentating. Um, particularly about issues of race at the time in 2015. Um, but that just grew in the legal issues and political issues. And um, six years later, seven years later, I'm still here. And we have some surprises and new stuff coming in the, in the near future. So I'm excited about it. Having been a representative in South Carolina and also a political commentator, how do you see America today as versus 10 years ago? So, you know, I start from the premise that America, nothing about this country is irredeemable. Um, I do think we have to reimagine what she looks like. And I think that the last um, 10 years, really, I go back a little further than 10. I go back to 2008, which was the election of Barack Obama. And I see a pull of what this country should be versus what this country was. And I see this country engulfed in fear, Um, fear that things are changing, fear that it's becoming browner. Um, And some people are afraid that we are going to, we being black and brown folk, are going to replace them in society, in the social order, et cetera. Um, And that fear led to the election of Donald Trump and has a lot of the politicians preying on that fear today. I'm still hopeful for the future, but I can tell you that it's exhausting. And it's hard um, right now. And the intellectual dishonesty and misinformation, I mean, when you overlay that with um, COVID, um, it's just been, it's a lot to go through, but I do think our brighter days are ahead. Speaking of COVID, how have you navigated that space thus far? I mean, well, we, we were one of those families that were able to navigate it for almost two years, I guess, without it coming in our home. But Omicron came in and, and, you know, we're all we're all uh, vaccinated and boosted. Um, but my wife, my wife got it pretty bad. And it was a blessing and a curse. You know, she was sick for a couple of days. Um, she was had a hundred and two degree fever. We put her upstairs. And I guess the blessing was I was able to lock her in a room upstairs for eight days. And she didn't bother me for about eight days. But, uh, you know, we, she she got healthy and me and the twins were uh, running around downstairs just trying to make do. So everybody's good now. Um, but I tell folks, get vaccinated, get boosted and, um, you know, do absolutely everything you can to protect others and those people who can't protect themselves. What gives you hope for your, your children, your two twins? I mean, I just look at the progress that my father and them made. I look at the sacrifices they, you know, they made and, and the success that they had and the changes that were accomplished because of their efforts and, you know, I'm willing to do that type of work and give my all. And, you know, I, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave this, this, this earth better than the way I inherited it. And that's my promise to them. 
and they, you know, when you look at your kids, man, you, you don't have a choice but to do what you can. Talk to us about your podcast. I mean, it's good. I was just interviewing Carl Bernstein, who's going to be on the show soon, from the legendary Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein. This mm-hmm. is the 50th anniversary of Watergate. I get an opportunity to interview everybody from Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama to, um, you know, Dr. Fauci, um, your favorite athletes and entertainers. I mean, it's a it's a platform for me to go out and ask the questions that people want me to ask and I want to ask and just continue to grow grow your brand so that you're always kind of front of mind and, and giving your thoughts about the news of the day. Tell us about your work at the Storm Law Firm. You know, I do a lot of civil rights work. I actually was in uh, Fort Worth, Texas yesterday working with a family on some civil rights cases. Oh, my part um, of the country. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, it takes me all over the country, all over the world, man. I just, you know, we do criminal law. We, we do we do everything. And um, I represented the families of the Mother Emanuel shooting against the uh, federal government, and we settled for $88 million um, just last year, mm-hmm. latter part of last year. And so for me, it's always, you know, I, I live by the motto that you can do good and do well. And that's what I try to do. I try to take care of my family, and I try to do good for the people I represent. I heard that. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio. And we're speaking with Bakari T. Sellers, attorney, political commentator, former member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, and his second book, author of Who Are Your People? Mr. Sellers, did you get a chance to check out the Emmett Till miniseries? I have watched some of it. Um, you know, that, that story is one that sparked my father's activism so mm-hmm. i'm pretty intimate in, in terms of understanding it and, and knowing it but i haven't completed it but i will uh, understand thus far how have how would you grade your your career oh i don't grade my career i don't count my i don't talk about accolades and grade my career and do all that other stuff i'm still i'm still grinding that's for other people to do i you know i don't write my own obituary I'll let somebody else do that. I understand. Talk to us about working for uh, President Obama. He was a friend, um, visionary, brilliant. Um, 44 is one of the greatest presidents and will be looked at as one of the greatest presidents in the history of this country. We miss him. I mean, we miss presidents in terms of thinking of Donald Trump. That could, you know, when, when Donald Trump was president, we always miss the fact Barack could put together a full sentence. Um, Shout out to his beautiful bride, Michelle, who just celebrated her birthday. Um, it, it was just a beautiful family, watching the kids grow up, Sasha and Malia. It was just a beautiful family, and being able to help him be one of the many people in this country who helped him become president, and um, not once but twice, is always something I'm going to be fond of. In your opinion, why has race been such a, a, a sticking point in this country thus far? I mean, it has been since the beginning of time. I mean, because we built this country and we built it for free. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at it through the lens of, uh, in the context of history, um, you haven't had a, a group of people who have sacrificed as much for this country as we have um, and who've had to overcome as much and still be standing. And so um, until we address the ugly sins of this, uh, of this country, which are both slavery and uh, the the murder genocide uh, of Native Americans we we won't ever get where we where we need to be where we deserve to be. 
for those that didn't have an opportunity to to read your your autobiography, My Vanishing Vanishing Country, give us a thumbnail of, of what the book entails. The book's about the black working class. You always hear about the white working class, but very few people talk about those individuals who go out and work with their hands every day, those country folk. Well, let's talk about the country country women who um, they wear the big hats and sit in the first two rows of the church. And when you hug them, you smell like Chanel number no. five all day. And they use two sticks of butter in their pies. Um, but they hug you and love you and lift you up. They're the backbone of your community. I wanted to tell their stories. Um, you know, the old men who come in the barbershop and sit there all day, don't get no haircuts, mm-hmm. but they want to tell you why Muhammad Ali was the greatest fighter in the world and when they served in Vietnam and how they marched with King. I wanted to tell their stories, um, you know, and, and the stories of the movement. I wanted to just talk about what it meant to be black um, and, and in this country and, you know, kind of push back on Mitch McConnell, I guess, and be black and American. <laughs> um, and so it was a, it was an awesome opportunity for a young boy to be able to write. And it, it came out, the unique thing is I, I wrote it and it came out May 19th of 2020, which was Malcolm X's birthday. About six days later, George Floyd was killed. A lot of people ended up reading the book around that time because we were going through so much as a country. So that book did extremely well, too. Uh, one more question. Uh, yesterday on, on NBC News, they had a, uh, expose talking to people in South Carolina and judging uh, how President Biden has done thus far. Your opinion on 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 what he's achieved thus far in his first first year in office? I mean, you have to give him credit for getting shots in arms. You have to give him credit for um, the the COVID Recovery Act and getting uh, those dollars in the streets and that investment into our economy. And you have to give him credit for passing the transportation um, that <laughs> you honestly see a lot of Congress people who didn't vote for it, take credit for those resources coming to their community. Um, but on the flip side, we still haven't passed criminal justice reform. Um, we still um, have not um, passed voting rights. Um, you know, there are still issues out there, build back better that, um, you know, people are disappointed because we felt as if if there was anyone who would be able to um, deal with the Senate, um, he would be somebody who could do that. And I think we underestimated the uh, the selfishness and the intellectual dishonesty of uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And so um, those lack of success is have put have put his first year in a light where there's a lot still left to be done. Can you articulate the stalemate that goes on in Congress? Nope, because it's infantile. Like I, you know, for me, it, it makes articulating something as infantile as understanding why um, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema want to preserve order over justice. I mean, I just can't, you know, it's the same thing uh, King talked about in his letter from the Birmingham jail in which he talked about the, the obstruction of the white moderate. I mean, we're still at that point, and that's unfortunate. Any final comments, Mr. Sellers? Uh, yeah, I have a, a final comment. You know, in, in, uh, you know, my mom and dad would always say the two most important words in the English language were the words thank you. And so I just want to say thank you for allowing me to use your platform. And I hope that individuals go out and get who are your people. 
Um, because if this book does well and continues to do well, then other people who look like us will be able to share their stories as well. So thank you so much for having me on today. Bakari T. Sellers, CNN political analyst, lawyer, former South Carolina House of Representative, and author of Who Are Your People? If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. You can also listen to a special collection of In Black America programs at American Archive of Public Broadcasting. That's AmericanArchives.org. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. Until we have the opportunity again for Technical Producer David Alvarez. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio. In Black America and KUT Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny O'Henson, Jr. See you tomorrow. Do brain games really make me smarter? What is all this screen time doing to my brain? How do I protect my brain as I age? Find the answers to life's most and least pressing questions about your mind with the Two Guys on Your Head podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.